Welcome to They Coined It. I'm Roberta Lip. I'm Dan Jasper. We cover Mad Men episode by episode, and sometimes we do other stuff about <laughs> Mad Men. Like, like today. today. <laughs> this is our, uh, they joined it. I know it's terrible. Second annual. Second whatever. Um, and this time we have special guest, Mark Harris. Welcome, Mark. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Snowy, snowy East Coast Saturday. But thank you for uh, for for joining us. It's going to be an awesome conversation. Mark, uh, is... my pleasure. It was a big commute all the way from my bedroom to my. We know. Room, but, we know. And but, thank you. you know, I made it. Sometimes it's a long, long walk to the Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> I was late because of the commute. That's there right. you go. Uh, Mark is a journalist, a film historian, a madman, friggin' gone. No, not gone. What's the other? That's not it. That's not the <laughs> maven, word. Maven. 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 Mad maven. Um, um, uh, and many other things, including the author of uh, Mike Nichols, A Life, which I just finished. And we're definitely going to talk about Mike Nichols a bit and where he is in the culture related to Mad Men and Mad Men. And, and then we're going to do some, you know, what was season four and what might we see in season five? And we've got a few audience members here because I was very late at uh, putting this thing together, but we're very excited to have listeners join us and we will hear from them. So let's go. Uh, Mike Nichols, I believe, had something to say about divorce, which I thought was what Matt Weiner was an original Matt Weiner thought. So what do you got, Mark? Yeah, this this is one of the things I found out while I was researching the biography is I knew uh, before that um, uh, Mike was a big um, fan of Mad Men. Um, he he especially later in his life, uh, he really started getting into, you know, bingeable television um, and he loved Mad Men. And I'm not surprised that he loved it because, you know, as a director um, and a, as an art creator, one thing that uh, Mike Nichols really was uh, the one thing that distinguished him was he 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 wanted to see people get the small details right. Um, and that, of course, is something you know, that, that Mad Men does extraordinarily well. So he really connected with the show. He, he reached out to Matt Weiner. Um, they became friends. And, and uh, as, as Matt Weiner tells it, Mike became uh, kind of a, a, a bit of a consigliere for him. Uh, you know, uh, I think Matt loved that he had, that Mike had lived through that, era uh probably you know uh, he was about the same age as as don draper and mm -hmm. and so he knew um he knew the vibe of being a, a single man in new york in the 1960s of being a married man in new york in the 1960s of being a divorced and remarried man in new york in the 1960s and um Matt says that uh, the the big creative contribution uh, that Mike made was uh, probably something that ended up being, I think, one of the more controversial Mad Men decisions among fans of the show, which was, he said, get Don remarried quickly because, you know, no, no married man who uh, recently got divorced 
and left his home behind in the earlier mid 1960s uh, is going to tolerate uh, nobody cooking for him for very long. Like he, he's going to want somebody, uh, you know, he's going to want a home. He's going to want somebody to put steak on the table. And so, um, uh, you know, the, I don't think uh, obviously that that did not, you know, generate the whole Megan plot line. It was, it was of course, something that Matt, you know, had in mind, but, but by Matt's own description, uh, Mike was influential in, in saying, you know, do that that's that's the right move for this character i mean he had it might not have generated the megan plotline per se but that is season four in a nutshell right don's dealing with it he's falling apart he's coming together what's going to happen marriage is not a topic until the last episode until it happens, season, yeah. right right so it, it it was planted you know the seed was planted in the in the premiere with with dr Faye. you're going to get married again and then that kind of goes away but we can look back to it and say well of course that's what she it was a premonition not just a throwaway but the whole season i mean roberta and i all through going episode by episode was like grappling with you know i don't remember and i'm it's like watching it for the first time but what the hell is the what's the story here? What's really happening? We're just watching Don kind of fall and get back up again and then fall again, which is fine. It's entertaining. And, you know, Matt's a great storyteller, but what is this about? And it wasn't, it's not until that, that hammer comes down and, and marriage is suddenly, you know, what we're talking about and watching happen that, um, or at least the engagement at by the end of season four, that, um, that it comes together, but it's so late in the game that, that it coalesces. Right. And I mean, to me, you know, we're about half, you know, season four is halfway through the run of the series. And, and to me, that, that decision, the way he handles the Megan plotline is this thing that um, kind of changes your whole relationship to Mad Men, or at least it did mine, because, you know, we, we have to remember, I think that we, we came into Mad Men, a lot of us with decades of uh, TV viewing experience behind us. And one of the things that experience tells us is the five or six characters you meet at the beginning of the series, Don, Betty, Joan, Pete, Roger, like those are the characters. That's who we're going to stick through. Their their relationships with one another are probably going to be disrupted, but eventually they're probably going to be restored. And and so then Matt does the unthinkable, which is like he splits Don and Betty up, not as a way to create drama in their lives so that he can then get them back together. But because he's moving on from that, like that marriage is over. He is moving on from that marriage. And I don't think it fully hits you until the very end of season four, when this uh, surprise engagement happens and you're like, oh, my God. Okay. We're like, he meant it. He's serious about this. You know, like this wasn't a TV marriage breakup. This was an actual marriage breakup of the kind that happened all the time in the 1960s which is don will now have an ex-wife and a new wife and and um, ex-wives sort of right right (laughs) you know uh so so uh i i think uh, you know it 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 had huge impact and i remember some of the kind of unfair really sharply negative response to just the existence of 
Megan as a character and how much screen time she was getting and this kind of how dare she thing that you would see on the internet, I think <laughs> was a result of people feeling like you're not part of this club. Like you were not a season one person. How you're dare not my you? mommy. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> How dare you come in and take time from the real people? Um, but uh, you know, yeah, that's so we we were all the 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 children of uh uh Don and Betty thinking, like, who is this? Yeah, she was definitely no cousin Oliver. Right. <laughs> this was a substantial, and that was always the threat of Mad Men that that you you know, episode by episode, where you never knew where you were gonna end up. Um, he meant right. it. That, Same and that's also a hallmark of, of, of the show and, and four seasons in, we weren't four seasons in until we finished, but, but three already, you know, Matt's not afraid to blow things up, right? You blow out the story. That story is done. Season one, every piece of that story, season two starts. We have no clue what the story is going to be for season two, season three, you know, no more, no more Sterling Cooper. We're blowing that up. Where do we start season four? Is there going to be an office? Are they still going to be in the hotel? Like everything is up in the air. So he's so not afraid to just blow it up, but, right. but in a way that is true to these characters. So you don't feel like anything's a gimmick. Well, one thing that every showrunner I've ever interviewed has told me about like planning is if you do your show right, what happens is you plan a whole season, and then once you start to execute it, you realize that you are chewing through your story faster than you thought you would. <laughs> and, and so you have to generate more story. And I think like that, that must be an incredibly hard job to like plan really well and then be willing to blow up your plan because you're your characters in a way tell you to accelerate things or take things in a different direction. And I feel like Mad Men was really unafraid to do that. And, and once they did the Megan thing, that kind of conditions you to think, well, you know, anything can happen. Maybe Roger will like die of his next heart attack. Like, <laughs> you know, will, will Matt kill someone? He could um, because he, he, he ruined that marriage. So, you know, and yet, and yet Megan, as we also say, you know, in, in on the episodes, she, she's there all season. It's a slow burn. She's hiding in plain sight. She is there the whole season. She is Completely. doing things. She's, she's just on the, on the fringe the entire time. And there's nothing to lead the viewer to believe. It's it's part of the rewatch effect. Um, it, 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 there's nothing to lead the viewer to believe that she is going to take a more prominent role or get more involved. She is just skirting on the on the on the on the periphery all season long. She got right. his desk. That was, and then slept with him. But, that but was on as the much other as hand, we we the, that we ever but saw. But we related that. But we related that time they slept together. At least I did. I, but to to Allison, she was the she was the anti Allison. Right. No. No. I I agree with you. We didn't when she got the desk. When she got on his desk, and then they slept together. You were like, oh, that's what Megan's for. Yeah. Right. She's on his desk now, and some maybe yeah. sometimes and nothing's going to come of this. Right. right. <laughs> well, we were not at. We were asking because Faye question. was the head fake. Right. But we were none of us were asking. Who's he going to marry? I think that's the best kind of twist. The one where you, you, you can, you say, I didn't see it coming, but you can't say it came out of nowhere. Right. Precisely. Breadcrumbs everywhere. Yep. Yeah. That's the show. 
That's the show. It's surprising, but inevitable. Right. All right. So Mike Nichols, I just, <laughs> I want to back up because I, so this was my first audio book. Cause I, cause I tweeted, oh, wow, like, wow. I tweeted to you, like, I don't read and I really want to read this book. And you're like, try it. So I did. Um, well, we got to give a round of applause to George Newborn, oh the um, George Newborn, uh, who people know from Scandal, I think, uh, in some ways he was he was uh, one of the assassins on Scandal. And he was it. he was the the groom in the Steve Martin Father of the Bride. Um, oh. But but he's also a, a, and he's the voice of Superman, by the way, in a whole bunch of animated uh, uh, cartoons. Um, but he's a wonderful audiobook reader, and he does a great, great job with uh, with uh, this book. I couldn't have been happier. It's a hell of a, you know, I've done some voice stuff, and I thought about doing books, and I'm like, it's, I can't even imagine the, the uh, no, I don't have the focus to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but what, you know, when, when I first started about him, what I'll say is I wanted him to be you, and I, I understood quickly that that was not his job, his job, you know, because the book isn't about you. So why, you know, why would your voice and what happened successfully is he mostly disappeared for me. So, and I think that's the point, right? Cause it's not about you or him. So. Yeah. Um, although I think disappearing is a much harder job than, I mean, he, he to me, he brings this kind of very gentle wit and irony to some of it mm. like i i listened to some voices of people who were up to to do it and it, weirdly like a number of the voices i heard were very kind of it was like someone you'd expect to read mark twain it was like mike nichols was born in berlin <laughs> it's just the wrong kind of american thing and and um what george did i thought is really lovely just found the kind of slight Europeanness in Mike and the Americanness of his story. Yeah, no, it, it was, and I meant just disappear in the most complimentary way. Um, because he, he's, he delivered, he delivered the story. I laughed, I cried. I, you know, <laughs> I really did. Um, what I, I've always kind of always known who Mike Nichols was. Um, and yet, and then I've been aware, I was aware all along, at least of most of the films, but it was definitely um, a journey of, oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, each time you would, you would tease the next thing, fucking wolf, like forgot all about wolf. Um, and the whole thing was like that. And, 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 and also that it was back and forth between Hollywood and Broadway, Hollywood and Broadway. Um, but it is, it is a journey. And he's utterly fascinating. You don't ever get an answer. Here's who, here's who Mike Nichols was, right? It's not, there's not one answer. Right. It's just, oh, I would, I think I would have loved him as much as I think I loved him. And sometimes I might've feared him. And sometimes he would have been a narcissist and all this stuff. Okay. Right. Which I think I hope people find is more of an honest. Uh, I mean, I don't think we we think about people we know in life and say in a sentence or two, here's who this person is like pe people don't um, have log lines that way. Uh, 
you know, I can say really easily, oh, well, Mike Nichols was someone who had, you know, parallel 50 year careers in uh, Hollywood and on Broadway. And before that, he was this remarkable, um, uh, innovative uh, comic performer. And before that, he came, you know, as a little boy from Nazi Germany. But but it's not going to add up to a kind of and therefore this is who he is. So so I I tried to. um Give him to readers and all of his complexities and contradictions. And and uh, I'm so glad you felt that way. Definitely. So the two times I've been in a movie theater uh, in the last two years, once was when I saw the screening of The Graduate with you. <laughs> um, and the other was when I saw uh, West Side Story <laughs> written oh, by wow. your husband, the great Tony choices. <laughs> I thought so. I think that's where I might've got COVID, but whatever. Um, Sorry. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's all right. I know it was, it wasn't worth it, but it was worth it. Um, but yeah, the screening of the graduate was it, it, if you ever get to see it on the big screen, uh, do so it is, um, better than you remember <laughs> and more interesting <laughs> and all of that. But it's, I think, kind of where I want to now bring it back is like, I'd like you to just talk about some of the, some of the culture points that he generated the Mike Nichols. That was the backdrop of, of Mad Men, Certain, you know, and go. Um. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the graduate and, and just to give people um, a little bit of a timeline since the graduate uh, came out in December of 1967. So at a point in the Mad Men timeline that you're not quite up to yet, but uh, it's based on a novel from 1963. Uh, so, so it kind of spans the, the Mad Men run in its creative evolution from novel to movie. And, um, you know, it's funny because so many people like in the years after the graduate came out said, Oh, it's about, um, it's about the generation gap and it's about um, a younger generation rebelling against an older generation. And that is not something that Mike or Buck Henry, um, the, the writer, uh, the co-writer of the script, um, ever really thought that it was about uh, Mike, what Mike always described the graduate as being about is something that I think of as a lot closer to the sensibility of Mad Men, which is, he, he said, you know, it's about, it's about a young man who is drowning in things like he, he, he's overwhelmed by um kind of the material possessions of his family and and his parents and you know they live in that beautiful california house and he gets this ridiculous present of scuba gear for for graduating from college um and he you know uh i mean mike loved planting these little uh sort of depth charges in the scripts of movies and in the very first scene of the graduate when benjamin comes home uh to a party that his parents have thrown him uh with all these guests he doesn't know not his friends his parents friends he goes up to his room and hides and of course his room is fantastic and he has this big aquarium and all the things that like a spoiled uh california kid of 1967 would have and uh he's glum and miserable and depressed and, and Mrs. Robinson comes in and um, I, she says something like, what, what's, what are you thinking about? And, and he says, Oh, you know, things. 
but it, you know things has a double meaning there and and so i think that that you know this sense of um growing alienation and anger that you know you're you're still in the mid 1960s you're you're in the 20th year of kind of living the post-war american dream um and certainly for a lot of middle-aged people including mrs robinson but but especially for someone like benjamin who's 21 um the dream is really beginning to curdle and and you're beginning to feel um alienated from this life of leisure and pleasure and and i think that's probably um one of the reasons that that um mike loved Mad Men so much is because it's entirely about people whose job it is to sell the dream and yet who are utterly not living it in their own lives who who they're trying to um uh, some with more success than others. Some are more aware than others that they're not living it. But, um, you know, the reality of the extreme messiness of relationships, of aging, of worrying that you're losing your sexual potency, of wanting power in your workplace, of realizing that you're on the wrong end demographically of the power situation in your workplace. If you're um, someone like Peggy or someone like Sal, you know, the, the, the realities of the mid 1960s and everything that was right and wrong with them keep crashing up against, you know, the, the imperatives of their job, which is to make, get, make themselves rich by helping people, uh, sell the idea that everything's great and everything will be just a little bit greater if you buy this product. Um, so how could you, Mike not love that? You are okay. <laughs> yeah, <for sure. laughs> You're okay. Um, Mike, you, you, you talk a lot of obviously about, about the graduate Mark? in your pardon Mark. That's what I said. You said Mike. People have been calling me Mike since I was five. I corrected myself. So you're 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 in a very good club, Mark, Mike. Um, But no, you you talk about the graduate in in your second book, which was uh, 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 pictures of revolution. Pictures at a revolution. My first book is pictures, and and then my second book is five coming back. Ah, yes, of course. And um, I wanted to ask actually ask you a question about five came back. Uh, which discusses the, the 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 directors who who helped the war effort uh, really by suspending their careers and and making effectively propaganda films um, because I, I think there's something really interesting about the connection between uh, one of those directors William Wyler who uh, who went on to direct after the war um, uh, one of the films that was a real just noted as by Matt Weiner as one of the source material which was um, the best years of our lives and. Um, such an interesting film, but at the same time, I, I can't help but connect a character like Roger and what we see Roger go through in season four. Um, when you talk about the, the the aging of the generation and realizing you're on the wrong side of things and, you know, what were we fighting for effectively in, in many cases, which which kind of gets addressed directly. But I just want to, you know, with with with, with you your knowledge of, of, of that film and the director and, and obviously that story, how that plays into Mad Men, I think is something that's really fascinating. 
Yeah, well, um, it, it, it's a great association. It's not one that I had really thought of, of before in terms of Mad Men, but but yeah, of course, the best years of our lives, um, which is just to nutshell it for your listeners who haven't seen it. Um, you know, it's a it's a story that was made in 1946 and, and 1947 about um, about returning veterans. It's the story of three men of various ages and various ranks coming home from the war. And it's it's again about what like what is outwardly an American triumph um, giving way to an American reality, which is the difficulties and challenges they face uh, in, in uh, readjusting um, to life and, and the difficulties that society faces in, in welcoming these men back on a big level, like on a professional level and even on a household level after having kind of gone on without them for several years. And, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to overstate the impact that this movie had, you know, in the pre-television era to see um, a, a really big, really long, complicated movie about the social issue of the moment um, uh, that was brought into, you know, basically every household. Uh, uh, it, it was hugely important. And, and, and yeah, that, as you point out, that is the, the Roger generation. Um, and, and it's it's fascinating to me because you know you still you still see this now this is not unique to any one generation like if you if you live long enough um in the culture you uh you will see yourself transform in the public eye from upstart to villain from part of the solution to part of the problem to part of the generation that is going to fix things to part of the generation that failed to fix things and and so um you know we meet roger uh at a point in his life where to a whole new younger set of people he's kind of the bad guy like roger is you know uh the problem with um the the early and mid 1960s in in the same way that we might see Joan and Peggy as the the solutions that begin in the early to mid 1960s um but Roger you know he's at that really painful point where he doesn't understand really at all that he's the problem no. but He's getting inklings of it from the world. Like there, there are there are moments when I think he realizes that he's not seen by everybody the way he sees himself. And and um, you know, I I so yeah, it's 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 really interesting to think of Roger as kind of the um uh the five came back generation because a lot of those guys really, you know. I think all of them, even at the end of their lives, would would say that the most important thing they ever did in their lives was fighting the Second World War. Um, and we hear a lot about from Roger about his war experience, but he but he's always worn it very lightly. Right. It was always like the good stories and he's having a drink and smoking a cigarette and around a table somewhere. And it never it, we never see anger and we never see, um, you know, anything negative, truly. 
uh, associated with it. So when, he, when in this season, it boils up, boils over. And, you know, he has that line, something like, you know, I promised a lot of, a lot of guys you'll never meet that I'd never do business with them when they're looking to do business with Honda. Right. That, that you go, Whoa, th- this was under the surface had to have been all the time. And, right. you know, and it, it of course it would be there, but we never seen it. Yeah. I mean, and, and it, it enriches him, I think as a character, I mean, it, Certainly, it, it, that question, um, because he is this, you know, he is this pretty happy go lucky guy, you know, certainly ambitious within a professional context, but, but he, he isn't someone, as you said, who just wants to sit around and tell war stories. He's not that guy. He's the guy who was probably very, very happy to leave it behind and go on to his life, which is, you know, a well, he's handed everything. Right. legitimate reaction to World War II or to any war. Um, but then, you know, you, you get, you find out at this point in the show that all that stuff still lives in him. And, and, you know, it kind of explains like, I think Roger probably sees himself as like the hero of his own life. You know, the, 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 the he sees someone who did something really important. And, and um, so that, that brashness, that confidence, that, that uh, absolute just, certainty that he's going to master any situation you get a little bit of where that comes from right and season four taking place in 1965 is just at that moment where as you as you referenced with with benjamin bratt it's starting to curdle it's starting to have a different these things aren't seen through the same prison that they had been seen for 20 years it's it's aging it's morphing and it's not all it's not all better like it's not roger's particular story but the 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 first wave of baby boomers the first children that that those returning vets had after they came home from the war are 19 now and they're in college and they're seeing campus protests and they're beginning to uh reject the world that they feel that their parents built and are responsible for and obviously like by the time you get to the graduate just uh three years later that's become a whole movement you Mm -hmm. know Amazing. I'm not asking you to quote this exactly, but Mike said something in the book about sex later. That was so, ah, oh, sorry. Is it, is it, is you know, it, it's hard when you're listening and you're walking, to, <laughs> just taking notes. He said a lot of things about sex. So the first thing I always think of is him saying that uh, you always want to stop in the middle and say, is this how other people do it? <laughs> I can't even remember now. I can't even remember. I mean, that was fantastic. I will move on. Um, that was a great line. Do you, um, before we sort of meet our peeps, uh, do you want to talk about Sal, Sal's journey on the show or, or, or anything in the, so you're, you're working on a new book, by the yeah. way. Uh, why don't you, ta- why don't you hit that and then. Um, so, so my new book is, uh, it doesn't have a title yet and it's not coming out for a long time, but it's basically going to be a, a history of, um, pop culture, uh, in all forms as a, a, a kind of battlefront and flashpoint for the LGBT rights movement from 1960 and maybe even a little before that to now. And, um, so there's obviously way more right. to say about that than I will burden anyone with here. But since you asked about Sal, um, you know, I 
always really uh i loved the way the show handled sal because it felt really brutally unsentimentally true to its period i mean the the to me the definitive sal moment is um uh that hotel uh is it a fire when they all have to evacuate yeah and and you know he's he's with another man he's 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 had a he's gone to to taking this opportunity to have a liaison and don uh just looks at him and shakes his head and says you people um and like that like the, the complete dismissal of him the reduction of cell to a category the freedom uh with which uh don expresses his repulsion and his contempt and his disappointment i mean uh it is uh i'm not saying that everyone was like that in the mid 1960s but it is really true to like it would not occur to don for a second that there was anything wrong in the way he viewed cell or spoke to sell that you know that was um that was absolutely a mainstream baseline position and and uh you know i know a lot of i had a lot of gay friends who were like it's so unfair that like we didn't get to see sal's story get finished and that we you know that he's just kind of dropped it's like yes that was very unfair to sal in a way that was exactly right but in the context of that show nobody would have cared if sal's story got finished or not to them sal's story was finished when they found out he was gay that that was his story there's no more to tell about that um and you know there are ways in the show in which sal is the architect of uh, his own misfortune to a degree i mean he's obviously like he's there were there were gay men who lived as gay men, of course, in the mid 1960s. And Sal has gotten himself into some, you know, misbegotten marriage when all he really wants to do is like understand the distinction between Anne Margaret and someone who's not Anne Margaret. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like he's letting you know who he is at every turn. Love um, John Crawford. And, and, and the <laughs> right. And and the world just um hems him in. So it's a um it's a heartbreaking story uh to me but within the time period and the professional context of the show um where people were enlightened enough so that of course they wouldn't have a problem uh working with someone like sal you know there's this great little moment in a uh i think it's uh lover come back this doris day movie that came out around the Mad Men time where uh, Doris Day runs um, uh, an ad agency and uh, one of her um, like layout designers uh, is very clearly a gay man. And, um, you know, he he's this big queen and really sort of mincy, but also really proud of his work. And he presents her with this um, layout that he's done of like a dream kitchen. And she looks at it and says, you know, lilac, Leonard, who would have a lilac kitchen? 
And he says, I have a lilac kitchen. And she catches herself. She realizes that she's said something hurtful inadvertently. And uh, she says something like, oh, well, of course, but Leonard, not everyone uh, is as artistic as you are. And he sort of takes the compliment and understands that she has tried to mend things. And she understands that she's made it okay. So there were people like people who did things like work in ad agencies and creative or creative adjacent uh, professions working with gay people was a fact of life for them. Um, It wasn't, they weren't the worst, most exclusionary, nastiest people. Um, But and, and, you know, probably the, the people in the show who are uh, in the ad agency but are 10 or 12 years uh, younger than Don would have had much less of an issue with Sal. You know, there's, there, I have to say there, there's such a head fake, though, that takes place over the course of that that season where, where, where Sal's let go because it's that opening that, that you mentioned where Sal, where, where Don catches Sal uh during you know coming out the fire escape and he sees through the window that he's with another man and they're flying back at the end of that episode back to new york and it's like i know you know and you know i know you know and and sal's like you know very nervous that don's gonna gonna say something about it and they end up talking about work and it's that whole you know uh, limit, your limit, your limit your exposure thing. that's the message but- and, and what we're but what we're led to believe though is that don's in quotes and whatever however whatever we want to hang on this word don's tolerant don's not going to fire him don's not going to say something nasty don's not going to you know it's over and done Absolutely, with in don's eyes and then it's later in the season that this happens and we know don knows and now it comes out and it comes out the way that it does so we're led to believe that don's one thing and really he's not Right. And I mean, when you first see that thing with Sal, you think this is the Don who uh, had that great uh, sort of unexpected moment of empathy about Peggy at the end of the yeah. first season, you know, and it's the, and it's the Don who knows, understands living a double life. Right, right. Don has a secret. Don has something that he's ashamed of. Don has sympathy for people who have to. Um, Seems pretty them. tidy at that point. And yet. There's this other thing, this cultural norm um, that that even Don gives into where he's like, "Ugh, those people, you yeah. people. And you when know? we discussed it on the show, my take was, well, now it's costing Don money. <laughs> right now it's affecting the business. And so that the 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 ugliness and the the what we would say is the wrong the, the wrong um, way to handle it, of course, it, wins because because now now the business is at stake right i mean these people you know in the show they're too they're they're too enlightened and sophisticated to hate sal that would be backwards for for that class of person in 1965 there was absolutely a degree of you know, live and let live. And as long as they're not flamboyant about it, and as long as they uh, keep it to themselves, I don't see a problem. That was the kind of enlightened 1965 take. But um, not so enlightened that there wasn't a law. Right. <laughs> or exactly. That there was a law or not so enlightened right. that, that it, it was, would just. And it, yeah, it was the enlightened 1965 take, not the mainstream one even. For sure. But, right. but even to those people were the cells of the world expendable if push came to shove and if money was involved absolutely no question so 
So I think, you know, I mean, I always appreciated the the fact that as much as I would have loved to see Sal's journey and I would watch, you know, probably a whole seven season show about the journey of a gay man in the 1960s. Um, I thought I thought the show handled his character and handled other people's reaction to him with really kind of brutal honesty. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and I love that the, that the show in the course of telling this part of the, this part of the whole story shows us exactly where that line is. It, right. And that's not just that there's a line and we, we know that, and that's one thing this we're seeing precisely where that is. Oh, my business is at stake or, or people are going to know about this. And now I, I, yeah, no, no, no more, no more tolerance. Right. I mean, there are many times in the series where, where we're told exactly like the line for Don is money, you know, like he, <laughs> he tells it to us many ways at many different times. That's what the money's for, you know, right. like right. He, money is defining for him in a lot of ways and you can't screw with that. That's I just right. wanted to say one thing about Sal, which is Sal's older and first generation. And that's, you know, part, part of what you were saying about, about Sal's own relationship with it is, is that is so much what informs how deeply pained he is and insistent on staying closeted, because as you're saying, there were choices. He could have been just out and flamboyant and and you say everything, but you know, you would have been an incredibly costly choice. We should say, I mean, but, but But in the world, We'd met somebody uh, in the Coke commercial in the first Coke commercial with Betty. There was a there was a, a flaming somebody. Right. right. And I think even in the world of Mad Men, if we look at like the the Ginsburg generation and the uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name, but um, Jay Ferguson's character. Uh, Stan. 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 Yeah. Lizzo. Like, you know, that those guys, guys that age are at parties in Greenwich Village all the time where there are gay people. And it's, I'm not gonna say it's not a big deal to them because 1965 was 1965, but it's a much, much, much less big deal to them than it would be to people of Don's or God knows Roger's generation and and Sal's generation. I mean, Sal is not that generation. You know, he, he um, you know, he lives a really painful, costly life. And and Marion from our, our soon to be not silent audience uh, ringing in with the experience that Sal saw with Kurt. Uh, Kurt coming, you know, just kind of going out there with with his his uh, sexuality and. And Sal witnessing that and, 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 you know, the bubble over his head is this is exactly why. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not out. I'm not dating. I'm not expressing any of this. Good choice, Sal. I'm patting myself on the back for having never gone there. Thank you. Right. Right. There's never a moment in the series in terms of its depiction of Sal when you don't know that Sal is absolutely aware of his place in the world. That's right. And and the risks of of doing anything other than uh, what he's done. And the one time he gives in, the one time he, he strays from that philosophy out of town on a trip we, in a the, hotel, a stranger. Boom, Don sees the, the, the one time we see him stray, like 
Well, yes, you know, but like, uh, shall we have a show of hands as to who thinks that's the first time? Brian Brian Bat Brian Bat does thinks this is his first time. Yeah, right. That's hard for me to imagine, but but um, you know, Brian Bat knows his character. I mean, we did see him say no to Elliot, but you're right. This time he's out of town. But he was also naive about traveling and being out of town. The way that Don was getting hit on by the stewardess, <laughs> he was like, "Does this happen to you?" So it there was a there was a lot of naivete about about Sal and relating to the world. Right, and Sal would be someone who um, would compartmentalize something like this. I mean, it, like you know, out of town in a hotel room, closed ended, one night thing. You know, to like. It, to steal a phrase from Don, you know, it, it never happened. I mean, it, it's, you know, Sal, Sal could write him a, a himself a, a kind of narrative in which that sort of never happened. Right. And it isn't as though he didn't know exactly where to go when he went. All right. right. It is time to open up because we're, <laughs> we're now popping up messages. So Jenna, hello, Jenna. Hi, I wanted to also respond with um, to to almost the you people comment that comes later. It's like a bookend to what Don sees. And as you named, it's about money, but it also seems to be about putting work above everything as if as if he expected Sal to acquiesce to Lee Garner Jr.'s advance for the good of the business. Right. And it's like, oh, now you won't, now you won't. Um, and, and it, it shows an assumption of a lot of, or it shows Don's assumption, um, and his acceptance of the, the kind of, um, the, the image of homosexuality at that point and the depravity of it. Well, Sal says, Sal says when they're talking, I'm married, which is sort of the wrong thing to say to a Don who's seen Sal not not be with a man, let's say, but cheat on his wife, which is also what what he saw in Baltimore. And he's also talking to the guy who slept with Bobby Barrett for half a season. Well, I was going to say, like, how how (laughs) does you know, we shouldn't underestimate the degree to which Don sees himself when he looks through that window. I mean, (laughs) how how do you look at yes? you know, a, a discreet uh, hotel liaison if you're Don and not think, oh, I get it. So, so you know, you people is among other things, his his way of saying, well, that's not me, you know. I, I mean, I, he, had just, he just told the wait, the stewardess, you'll have lots of chances. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, married, married doesn't change that. And to what Jenna said, that's a really good preview and, and comparison because what we've got coming at some point is, is a, is a heterosexual opportunity to sleep with somebody to save the business at which Don is appalled. And, but, but not if it, you know, not, not if it's just this gate, you know, this guy stuff, or right. I don't even want to use the words he might, he'd be thinking. Right. Uh, well, I think Don might think that, um, you know, like I think one thing that's really important to remember is that so few people ever thought of homosexuality in the mid 1960s as connected to romance or love or a desire to build a life with someone of the same sex. They they, they really looked at it as a sexual desire and urge, and so it would have been very easy for Don to kind of think, well, why why wouldn't Sal sleep with someone to help the business because 
all sexes kind of yeah ex- exactly people, that now's you know? not the time to get shy right right exactly right like, like, really like team. Or, yeah. or picky because yeah. there's no pickiness involved in being well, one of well, those that, well that's why i bring up the the bobby barrett analogy i mean it's it's sort of like you, you got to do what you got to do you take one for the team you were being asked to do that with lee garner what what exactly is the issue here right especially also like sal's a man i think I think even mm-hmm. if he's a gay man, what Don would think about uh, a man, you know, kind of transactionally sleeping with someone uh, to help business is really different than what he would think of a, a woman. I mean, it, it it would be a more complicated thing. Well, we see that line too. We see it with with Joan later later in the series. Yeah, right, Jenna, Jenna, I, no, I wanted, Mark, I wanted, I might have stepped on Jenna's because point. I have a completely different take on this. Mark one. had a sentence to finish. Sure. No, I was, not I was, anymore. Okay. <laughs> I was just going to say that that um, I think I think Don wanting a woman to do that, which obviously we do see him do later. Uh, unsettles his view of himself as a gentleman a little more than him expecting Sal to do it does, you know, that, but that's just my take. Meaning, meaning guys might need to do that, but women shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. So, so my take is that I think in the time is completely different. My take is that, um, hi, this is Deborah lip. Oh, hi, this is Deborah lip. Um, (laughs) I've met her. The, I must have seen this episode the fifth time when I looked at it and said, Don simply doesn't believe Sal's version. Don thinks because he has seen that Sal is gay, Don thinks that Sal was the predator. Lee Garner is a businessman. Sal is a gay man. Therefore, Sal is the predator, and that's what you people means. Not that Lee made a pass and Sal should acquiesce. The idea of a gay man being assaulted by another gay man and and refusing to acquiesce is so, you know, 21st century, because, because, you know, now we think of gay people as human beings. But that wasn't what Don thought, not at all. And that's what he meant by depends on the woman. Like he does not believe Sal's version of that encounter. Mm-hmm. He believes that Lee Gardner wants a sexual predator fired. You, you, you've, you're so much more familiar with the episode at this point than I am that I, I mean, I'd have to look at it again. I, I it's a fascinating uh, theory. And um, I just, I don't, I don't remember that moment vividly enough to, to be able to, mm. to answer. But, but I, I do think you people, I mean, I think that's a really well-chosen line because it's both very capacious and very ambiguous. Like right. there's a lot packed into you. It people. feels specific, but it's actually not very specific at all. Right. It doesn't have a verb. It is wanting a verb. <laughs> right. It's just the, yeah, you people what? Um, it's it, it's just the identification of a category of person um, for whom Don uh, feels contempt, but uh, but but what that category is and why is left unsaid. Amazing. 
And Deb, your other point, I, I think that's worth bringing out too, that <laughs> would you say Brian, Brian believes Sal? Oh okay. yeah. Brian and I actually joked about it when I interviewed him. We think that, uh, that Sal brings home a little bellhop outfit for, for his wife to wear. <laughs> and she just does not understand why. <laughs> Honey, are you sure? <laughs> right. Yes. But then, you want the hat? <laughs> not tending your garden here. Put this on. <laughs> yeah. There's probably a whole TV series to make about, you know, Mrs. Sal. Um, oh, yeah. and, and what that life was like. We saw too little of Kitty. That's for sure. She's having a career though. <laughs> She's doing just fine. Um, Je- yeah, Jenna. So let's just open it up to some questions or more comments and it could be continuing on this exact thing or whatever we've heard or go people. I like, I love this little Please audience. Unmute. Yeah. Un- unmute yourself and say hello. Hi, this is Jenna. Um, I'm a longtime fan of Mad Men, that's a given, but also of They Coined It. I think I was one of the first Apple reviews. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. We love those, uh, most of them. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's it's a true dream to be here today. And um, yeah, I, I, I actually, I think that um, Deborah, your read has, has convinced me, although it did always strike me as Don is touchy about sex work and prostitution more broadly. Um, the idea of leveraging, I mean, he does it constantly. Again, I, I do think that it, there is like obviously a double standard. Um, leveraging sex for professional advancement is mostly is mostly for men to do. And um, I think specifically there's, and I, and I think this is relevant, this is looking ahead to season five to talk about his reaction to Jones' um, proposition. Um, but it touches on some of the curdling that's happening underneath season four of this like trauma that nobody has a name for kind of flaring up. Um, yeah, that, that, uh, his own views on sex work are so informed by his upbringing, by the loss of his mother, by his, and, and his birth in one. Um, and yeah, I think there is also an element of, uh, his own view of himself as a gentleman and in control. And I think maybe there's some conversation of, you know, his growing up in a brothel environment is, and, and also his own trauma there informs his view of women taking control of their own sexuality or, um, leveraging exploitation in in, like exploiting their exploitation. (laughs) Right. in order um, to gain a step. What, one thing I, I just want to add about the perception of homosexuality in the mid-1960s is that, you know, there were all kinds of, like, long now discredited uh, takes on homosexuality, but one of them was the, was the idea that what distinguished gay men from straight men was that homosexuality was a kind of compulsion, that, that gay men had a, a like, a, a ridiculously hard time controlling themselves they gave into this they couldn't resist it you know like women like you know women and gay men were not in control of their sexual appetites or urges and so they came out in kind of weird problematic ways whereas don i mean for all this philandering or whatever i think there are very few moments when um 
Don would ever view himself as giving in. Like, I, I think, I think for him, usually it's a decision. And I think, um, I think the, some of the repulsion you see him express about Sal is kind of like, uh, how could you be so needy? How could you be like weak enough to let your appetites rule the moment? You know, it, it's it, like in, in Don's cosmology, that's one of the things that makes Sal less of a man, you know, that, that kind of behavior. It's not necessarily the what he might view as the predatory aspect of it, but as the kind of, you know, oh, you people like I think what's what's implied there in you people is you like I think if Don were asked to finish that sentence, it would probably be something like you people just can't help yourselves, can you? Like, I think that's the end of that sentence, but Hard to know. I think you're right. And I think it goes with what my sister said. And when we do see Don not make a decision about who he goes to bed with was this season in the, like, the last weekend episode where he wakes up with somebody he doesn't remember going home with. And that was that was where he decided to, to sober ish up. That was one of the one of the wake up calls of that weekend. By the way, just a side note, one of the things I've been researching for this book is the novel, The Lost Weekend. Um, and I did not realize until I started work on this that A, the writer was a closeted gay man and B, the character in the novel is a closeted gay man. Oh, wow. This novel oh. written in, you know, and and you're even given to think that he, that, that his uh, homosexuality uh, and his efforts to repress it has been one of the things that's led to his alcoholism. So go wow. figure. Who knew? <laughs> really interesting. Wow. Who else? That, was, that obviously did not make it into the 1945 movie. Yeah, I missed that part. <laughs> I, I missed that thread. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't in the, the subjects. I don't know. Strangely, code. there was yeah. a reference to the movie in the episode where Sal has the encounter with the bellhop. That's interesting. Just pulls it all around. Wow. Nice. Nice. Marion. Hello. Hi. Um, Well, just to kind of continue along this thread and forgive me, Mark, if I misheard the subtitle of your book, are you, are you uh, investigating specifically? No, you you said LGBT. So I'm curious uh, how different it was for, women i mean i in your research are you coming across people who identified as non-binary or even asexual where um i guess where are you coming up in that and then to put it back to madman i do find it so fascinating that you have someone like joyce who we meet in season four who is just out and proud lesbian and you know like doesn't even have a second thought about you know making a pass at you know her new straight friend and you know just kind of like seeing what's what's going on there Mary and mark mark said he didn't have a title we're here to help him find one oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't have a title yet and and i i have to say i feel like i will be um way more qualified to answer your really good question in about three years of, <laughs> of further research but I, I think one thing i can say now is that um in the in the earliest 
part of this the timeline that I'm researching. I mean, right now I'm doing a lot of reading about the 40s and 50s. Um, no, I don't think that you know people didn't identify as non-binary or asexual because the like non-binary was literally not a term then um and and asexual basically wasn't for you know as a as a category of of self-identification but that that doesn't mean that like i'm i i mean i think i am coming across people even from back then who we would now retrospectively say maybe saw themselves as non-binary or certainly asexual without but but didn't even have the language to um formulate that so so i i think i mean yeah i'm going to be looking uh, across the spectrum of of non-heterosexual sexuality um and I think probably as I get chronologically farther in my research, I'll, I'll begin to find uh, more, more uh, stories like that. An old friend of mine is the niece of Quentin Crisp. And I just realized if you would like me to connect you with her, I'm happy <laughs> to. She, I mean, she's like the keeper of his. Wow. His wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, she's we'll, we'll talk about that. And she, she definitely has said, I, I would assume, uh, but she, she didn't use an, a, uh, she probably said he, right. But she, but that he would be trans now, uh, we'd be considered, would, would now call himself trans. But right. Well, you know, to, uh, you uh, mentioned West Side Story and Tony, um, you know, one of the things that he, he did was to take the character of anybody who was identified as a, a tomboy um, in, in the original and, and, uh, and make her, you know, uh, or make them really more of a, a trans uh, character in, in, I think, a very not uh, overstated way, but but it's there enough to have um, made some people uh, very happy that he did it and some people very angry that he did it. So so this question of like, you know, how how would people have identified if they could have had the language to identify is is just hugely complicated and, and painful. Like how can you identify as something when you don't even, nothing in the world has told you that it's an option. Right. And you know? yeah. Yeah. Oh no, that was, that was so beautiful. And, it, and I saw the film with my 13 year old niece who just was all over it. Like she got it. She knows she's in, she's a Brooklyn kid. She knows, you know, she's, she's got the whole thing. And, uh, but I did explain to her, I'm like, you see, this character was kind of more of a, this and actually became a trope in other movies. I mean, look at Greece too. And it just made so much sense. And it was so beautiful and oh, I'm glad you thank felt him for way. us. Yeah. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Who else wants to jump in, say something, ask something, add something. Well, and then I guess very quickly, just to kind of put a button on that, if we're sticking to the binary, what's, what's your experience between just like what it would have been like for a gay man closeted or out and what it would have been like for a gay woman, just, you know, kind of. At, at, at what point? Like, at, like sort of in the Mad Men time and in, in the sixties and like what, what the cultural attitudes were, um, was there like, has there always been a little more acceptance of like, well, if it's two women, then. <laughs> um, 
you know, I, I feel like I I need to do more research on this, but but I will say, you know, if we're talking about the mid '60s and we're talking about what was the attitude like, uh, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is who had custody of the attitude, and of course, in the mid '60s, that was much more men than women, and yeah, I do think that there was this attitude that. Um, I mean, I think to a lot of straight men, gay women were baffling, frustrating, weird, um, silly, a turn on for some people. Gay men were a danger, a menace, child molesters, um, disgusting, stabilizers. I mean, you, you know, because of course, every. I mean, if you're a man and you're you're terrified of gay men or or angry at them, it's partly because you know to quote Seinfeld, you you have access to the equipment, like you know what it's like to be a man. Um, and so, yeah, I think that um, certainly in pop culture, which is what I'm looking at most closely, you definitely see. Um, as early as, you know, the sound movies, um, stern, fierce, predatory lesbians. I mean, that, that, that's, that certainly exists. You know, it's not like those really ugly stereotypes aren't in place. But, um, but the absolute loathing of gay men feels to me like it, it was in a different category of anger, you know? And we've already seen um, Car uh, Carol, the Jones roommate in season one, and now uh, Joyce in season four. And but 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 also different ages, Joan, you know, different years, but also different ages between Joan and Peggy. I mean, Peggy is more what you were describing about, you know, out, I mean, this is out there in the clubs, you know, part of you've got Joyce being super out and comfortable with herself. But what I love is how Peggy just doesn't mind being flirted with and, right. and is very not interested, you know, but like has no problem with it. So it's, it's fascinating. And yeah. Yeah. I, my, my early impression is that women were chiller about this sooner than men were, but you know, it's, but I have a lot more to learn about this. So. It was also always less slutty with women than men. And that's just because sometimes <laughs> men and women are different. Um, who, anybody else want to? I can tie it back to the graduate for a second. It just struck me, Mark, when you said, when you pointed out that the graduate was released, released December, 1967, I'm like, Oh, what's the date <laughs> of the season six opener and sure enough it's december 1967 and that is the scene where um don is on the electric walkway mimicking the opening shot of the graduate ah. that it was a direct <laughs> homage oh my yeah. god that, that's right fantastic yeah that's wonderful that right. it doesn't surprise me that matt would would put in a nod to uh, <laughs> The graduate, and of course, that he would find the the perfect timing uh, for it. 
You know, the only other thing I'll say about The Graduate is that it's it's hard to remember now that um, when people saw movies uh, relative to when they came out is so different uh, (laughs) today than it is uh, than it was, you know, 50 years ago. The Graduate played in theaters for two full years. It's amazing. Um, And and so for for actual um, for moviegoers. It was much more a 1968 and even 1969 experience than it was a 1967 experience. That, the fact that it, it was a 1967 movie was shocking to me because I not and I didn't live through it. I didn't see it in a theater, certainly. But yeah, it, it, it seems like so, like so much part of the later 60s culture, even than 67. But right. but it wasn't. Wild. Um, all right, I think we can wrap my, uh, Mark. Uh, you can follow Mark on Twitter. He's a great follow. And I actually have one more question for Mark. And Dan has one more question for Mark. And my question for Mark is after your LGBTQ book and pop culture that you're going to spend the next at least three years on. Um, we talked about the fact that that so much of your writing is so Mad Men adjacent, even <laughs> if it hasn't been specifically about Mad Men. Uh, if you were to, this isn't, I'm not being suggestive, but if you were to take one aspect of the entire series that just fascinated you enough to spend the amount of time and energy on a book that you were to focus on and not just the, you know, the whole series and, and, but, but to focus on something that fascinated you, what would that be about? Wow. Um, I feel like you're writing that's, it. That's such a great question. Um, sex is like sex and gender is 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 what I want to say. Just because whenever I'm thinking about uh, a new book, I can do one thing. I think is always what will I what will keep me interested every single day. <laughs> Um, like what, what will I not get bored by ever? And, and so that's like one of the first things that, that comes to mind. Um, and also just because it seems like a really rich, like it sort of feels like you could get at almost every area of, of Mad Men, including like how they use sex to sell things and what advertising is, um, you know, through, through looking at how the characters view gender and, and sex, but, but uh, maybe, maybe it's just because we've talking, we've been talking so much about Sal. That's what comes to mind. Okay. Well, we'll look for that in 2029 or 2030. Oh my God. <laughs> in the meantime, Mike Thank Nichols, you. a life comes out in paperback uh, by the time this episode drops on Tuesday, the, I don't know, date, first, first of first. February. Um, and I, I, I really, I highly recommend it. It is. Thank it you. Is, it is uh, before we, before we, we started recording, we were talking about Gilbert Gottfried's uh, podcast and, and it's, and I, uh, and how it's, it's often a journey through Hollywood history and your book is so filled, like all of a sudden, all of a sudden somebody is who's commenting. Now you're a little bit in their world and you're getting like all these different, all these different people and slices of Broadway history and film history. And, and uh, it's just, it's just a, it's a ride. 
<laughs> thank you thank you i think a ride is the highest compliment i could ask for i, I wanted it to be a ride and i i hope uh, some of you out there will take it all right and folks we will be back next week with a little kiss part, part one. one season five we're coming back thank you all so awesome, much guys this was thanks really everyone wonderful. this was just wonderful wonderful mark thank you jenna thank deborah marion thank you thanks guys all right bye bye Bye.